You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. And me, Edward Gomez. Right, there was an exciting event, uh, well actually not this month, but announced this month. It was an event that took place uh, in December 2018. Um, And it's the kind of thing you think you might have noticed. (laughs) Uh, An explosion of uh, an asteroid um, 60 miles or so above uh, the surface of uh, of the ocean, on the surface of the, the, the Earth, uh, generating something like a, a 173 kilotons of energy. Which, to, to compare it to other events, that's about 10 times kind of the Hiroshima atomic bomb and so on. This is a very powerful explosion. And, um, and, and no one saw it until now. Yeah, that's right. And actually, it was only um, when it was Earth observation footage, so uh, satellites that are looking down on the Earth... Um, some scientists went back and were analysing the footage from December and went, oh, that's something interesting. Yeah. And uh, But nobody saw it on the ground. Um, if you remember, cast your mind back to February 2013, the Chelyubinsk fireball, uh, and how much coverage that got in the news. This is of equivalent magnitude, and yet no one spotted it. And now there's a good reason for that, I suppose. Chelyabinsk, uh, that event took place over Russia, over the city of, of Chelyabinsk, and uh, a thousand people or so um, were, were injured, I think. Um, but many, many more saw it, and there was dash cam photos of, of it and, uh, and so on, and then the impact site was later found. This one was over the Arctic Ocean, and there aren't many people there. It was above the clouds and so on. So that, that has a lot to do with it, which makes you wonder... Um, how many of things? How many of these things we we haven't seen? There's a lot of water out there. Yeah, that's right. And actually, that's one of the, the one of the fantastic things about uh, asteroid defence is that the Earth does have massive oceans and seas uh, which uh, will absorb these type of uh, mm. craters. And so, so if you look at uh, craters from impact craters from uh, from the air, then um, you'll notice that there are ones. There are quite a lot on the, the ground, but there's obviously a lot to that happen in seas and oceans. So this was just, as you said, scientists going and studying footage and happened to find a, a bright streak, which was the fireball, uh, this thing streaking across the skies and the shadow of it on the clouds. And they were able to go back and analyse it and figure out um, uh, how it evolved with time and maybe even, uh, I guess, start to pin down where it where it came from uh, as well. But... Um, yeah, there, I guess there are more of these than we uh, uh, than we knew. There are methods of trying to find these from space, but um... yeah, they're very difficult because uh, they're moving very fast. They're very small, so you can't normally. So um, with Las Cumbres Observatory, I'm involved in the effort to uh, characterize and follow up on near Earth objects, uh, and these are not near Earth objects. Mm. These are these are splinters of asteroids, so very much smaller than the type of things that we can identify from survey telescopes on the ground and uh, quite worrying because uh, obviously if this was to hit London or a major city uh, then it would actually be pretty disastrous. Yeah so the um, uh, the, the estimate is this thing was about 10 metres wide um, which isn't um, uh, it doesn't sound that big uh, and, and weighed about a one and a half thousand tonnes which is quite I mean it's a pretty big, big, big. Chunk of, big chunk of rock um the the reason these things are so dangerous is this thing would have hit the atmosphere going at something like 70,000 miles an hour over 100,000 kilometers an hour that that's why these things are dangerous because yep. they come in uh, they come in so fast this was a splinter off an asteroid uh that that come flying towards uh earth but instead of only asteroids come towards we can go to asteroids and that's what we've done we've talked on this program uh, a number of times now about the Hayabusa 2 mission which has gone to the asteroid Ryugu there's also the OSIRIS-REx mission which is a, a NASA mission that's gone to the uh, asteroid Bennu um, and the Hayabusa mission has found some interesting things about uh, Ryugu, the asteroid it's visiting Yeah, the Ryugu has a, a quite strange shape, It's it looks like a spinning top mm. and the reason that it looks that way instead of looking like a ball or a potato uh, is that it's not solid. Uh, it's uh, mostly rubble. Uh, it's, a, it's a so-called rubble pile asteroid. So it's a, a very loose collection of uh, smaller boulders and rocks that are held together by the, their own gravity. Um, mm. And because it's spinning, it produces this, this uh, sort of flattened cupcake or spinning top mm. type shape. 
when uh, when Hayabusa got to Ryugu as well, it was spotted there were a lot more boulders on the surface that you might expect, which which makes sense if this thing is just a load of boulders. Yeah, that's right. With what they call the regolith, like the dust. So these have come together. There's been a bunch of dust that's come up and that's settled onto the surface. Yeah. Um, but that may also means that its next its next challenge of trying to send a, a little a mini bomb down there. It's it's already we talked uh, last month about it. it. Fired a bullet into the surface and collected material. Its next challenge is to lower an explosive device, blow a little crater in the in the asteroid, and then see what it finds underneath and try and try and get access to the surface um, beneath. Bennu, the the uh, asteroid that the Osiris Mex. Osiris Rex mission is, is visiting has a similar kind of shape. It looks kind of squarish in some of the images, so maybe there's something going on there. I think that's meant to be a lot older. So Ryugu is thought to be a few, you know, a hundred million years old or something, which is very young compared to the yeah. the, the age of the solar. And the fact that it it is still rubble as well. It hasn't mm. uh, under gravity just pushed together into something more solid. Means that it must be quite young. Mm. Um, which, if this was all bits that came off another asteroid, then maybe there's a parent body somewhere that's missing a chunk of it from all this material that got thrown out. Yeah, perhaps. or it could be just um, an interaction that obliterated two smaller ones. Or yeah. we, It's going to be very, very hard to, to find out uh, that sort of thing. Although not impossible. There are meteorites on the Earth called Vestal meteorites uh, that come from a, a big asteroid called Vesta. And so it is possible to piece together this type of impossible detective story. Mm. Um, one of the things that the Hayabusa 2 mission is hoping to solve is uh, where water came from on Earth. And because there was a period in Earth's history called the period of heavy bombardment, and that is where it's thought the majority of the water on Earth has come from. A long time ago, people thought that it came from comets. Mm. And now, as we've studied more and more comets, we mm. realise that the type of water on comets is quite different to the type of water on Earth. And uh, the type of water in uh, asteroids is a lot closer to the type of water on Earth. And by type of water, I mean um, the, the hydrogen is enriched. It's, it's heavier mm. um, in, in a very small percentage. It has an extra neutron instead of just being a single proton. So it could be that asteroids like Ryugu and uh, and Bennu are the kind of objects that hit the Earth to give us our water, and so studying these in more detail is going to let us know that. Although they, they seem pretty dry from the first um, the first observations, I think. Um, so there's not yeah. a lot of water there. That's right. Yeah, and particularly being a rubble pile, uh, there isn't there aren't a lot of places for water to hide mm. on on something like this, rather than a, a solid, more solid body. Mm. There's a video out there of, of uh, Hayabusa's landing where it went down to the surface and you can see the, 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 uh, the effect of the little five gram, quite small, uh, bullet hitting the surface and throwing up this big uh, cloud of debris, which is quite fun to watch if you want to see Yeah, that. it's not dust. Yeah. It's not just the regolith. Um, it is quite large things, mm. stones. So going from asteroids in our solar system to uh, which are fairly close to the Earth uh, in in cosmological terms or as astronomical terms, let's go back to the most distant object that we've uh, seen. Um, we're looking here uh, at a distant galaxy uh, so far away the light was emitted, or the light that we're measuring was emitted uh, just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, which compared with the the universe's age is about fourteen billion years, or about thirteen point eight billion years. Um, that's very close to the Big Bang uh, itself. And this is interesting because we think these are probably the first galaxies. That's right, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's probably the first galaxies. It's way, way after all of the, the formation of the universe stuff mm. as well. So it's, it's well after the cosmic microwave background and inflation and all of those things. Mm. The universe is, is more or less what it's like now, only quite a bit smaller. Um, but the... So it's the universe is getting on with the business of the universe, forming stars, forming galaxies, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, the the galaxies that were around in those days are very different to the galaxies that we see now. And one of the interesting problems in astrophysics is working out what, what happened, why galaxies are different, why galaxies are the way that we see them today. And obviously, we don't get to look at galaxies in the same amount of detail as close by galaxies as well. So there's a, there's a lot of problems. Mm. But the interesting thing about this story is uh, that there's um, uh, the, the measurements that are being made are of a star in a galaxy. And uh, not only a star, but a star that it has exploded. And the explosion seems to have things in it that 
suggests that the star isn't the first generation of stars that existed in the universe. So the, the universe, when it formed, uh, after it had formed, was 75% hydrogen, 25% helium, with almost nothing else. And so the first stars that formed would have been that same proportion. And in fact, most of the stars around us are pretty much that same proportion. But over the evolution of the universe, gradually those stars have created heavier elements, such as carbon and oxygen and nitrogen, and then up to you know, iron. And explosions have, of course, you know, created gold and, and lead and all the other heavy elements. But it's creating those first relatively light elements like oxygen and carbon that shows you that there must have been some stars around to form those elements in the first place. And the fact that this explosion of, of stars in this, this galaxy already shows the existence of oxygen, there must have been something to make them beforehand. So we're seeing the result of at least the second generation of stars. Yeah, which is very weird because uh, although stars can live and die in a very short period of time, uh, a few tens of millions of years, and we're talking about uh, uh, hundreds of millions of years after the Big Bang, it to, for, to get a star from the point of being a gas cloud to a star is a very long process. So they didn't mess around. They yeah. really were, you know, forming stars, exploding, and then forming new stars, and then those exploded, and that's what we're looking at. Now, one catch here is that when we're looking at such distant objects, this object has been magnified by the effect of something called gravitational lensing, where the, the, the mass of a nearby cluster of galaxies has, has magnified the image in, in, in some way. And that means we can see the odd object at these distances, but we can't generally see them. And it also means we're, we're probably looking at the extreme objects. We're looking at probably the brightest ones, um, or possibly the biggest ones, or, or whatever, some, some odd properties of them, some, some outliers. Um, and so we can't at the moment study these galaxies as a, as a whole population. So maybe there was the odd galaxy that formed stars this early, but most of them didn't. Who knows? Uh, we need future missions to tell us about the, the, the first galaxies and the first stars. That's right. And because these are extreme objects and we're looking at extreme phenomena, there could be something else happening. Mm. There could be some other process which is forming oxygen. And mm. actually what we know about the universe uh, is, is largely based on uh, theory and uh, matching that theory to observations. And, and actually because we haven't got a complete picture, we are missing stuff there. So we may... Uh, just not have enough information to say that this follows the normal pattern. Well, our understanding of the universe has, has changed hugely over uh, the last hundred years or so. It's uh, one of the really surprising things that I remember when I first found this out, I was very surprised to hear or to discover that less than a hundred years ago, we found galaxies or we had evidence that there were galaxies beyond our own. This all started in the, the 1920s with the studies of galaxies by astronomers uh, like uh, Edwin Hubble and then theoreticians like uh, Georges Lemaitre and so on. To find out more about that story of the evolution of our understanding of the universe and its expansion, I spoke to Dr. Aminia Calabresi, who's uh, based here in Cardiff University. And I began by asking her what those two astronomers, Hubble and Lemaitre, were doing in the 1920s. They, they didn't mean to discover the expanding universe at the time. Uh, what they were, well, what Hubble was looking at um, were peculiar stars in what at the time were thought to be uh, nebulae within our own galaxy. So they, they thought that there were some clumps of uh, gas and um, uh, stars uh, uh, within our galaxies. Uh, and looking at these uh, particular nebulae, they uh, find, uh, found out that actually they were too far to be uh, part of our own galaxies. So the first big discovery at the time was that there were stuff beyond our galaxies. Mm -hmm. And in fact, these nebulae that they were looking at were galaxies on their own. Uh, so the first big uh, thing that they figured out is that the universe was not made only by our own galaxy. There was something beyond that. And then by uh, looking at the distances and comparing then the distances with the velocities of these objects, they figured also out that uh, not only these objects were uh, far away, but they were also moving um, more and more uh, away from us, from Earth. Uh, the, the farther they were, the faster they were moving. So the big uh, discovery was that actually things were, there were other things beyond our own galaxies and they were moving away from us. 
Um, this had been noticed already by, uh, well, had been measured already by another astronomer, Vesto Schlieffer, uh, before Hubble, uh, where uh, he was observing um, some emissions in this nebula, and he found out that they had a peculiar receding velocity. Mm. Uh, but he didn't make the connection that that meant that mm. the universe was expanding. Right. So, so the, the discovery of the expansion was then attributed to Hubble, but Hubble simply put together his distance measurements with Vesto's redshift measurements, and he figured out that these things were actually moving away. And it was the fact us. that the, the ones that were further away, the objects that were further away, appeared to be moving faster. Faster. That, now, that sounds like everything is rushing away from us, but it's just, that's just what happens if you, if you imagine taking a, an elastic sheet and expanding it with a, you know, us as a dot in right. the middle. Uh, if you stretch it, it will look like any other dots on there. The further away they are, the faster they're getting away. So it's, it's, a, it's a rate of sort of expansion factor, if you like, rather right. than these things. They're not actually, or in general, they're not actually moving away from us, you know, flying away at some high speed. It's everything that yeah. is being stretched out. Um, uh, and so, yes, they, they look like if, as if they're moving, but in reality is the underlying universe that mm. is expanding and bringing them with it in its own expansion. Now, this linked with some, I guess, more theoretical studies by Georges Lemaitre um, that was looking at equations linked to Einstein's predictions of the expanding or of uh, Einstein's predictions of general relativity. And that was a link that led to what's now called, as of a couple of months ago, I guess, the Hubble-Lemaitre law. Right. Um, so that's this expansion, right? Right. So th there was a problem with a finite static universe. Uh, it would have not worked. It would have collapsed under its own gravity. And so people had started thinking about the possibility of the universe actually being non-static and so expanding. And this first started uh, appearing with the Friedman uh, laws uh, describing the geometry and the matter distribution of the universe. And Lemaitre just took a step forward in that and looked at the equations and worked out uh, what kind of um, expansion rate you would want uh, for such an expanding universe. Now, unfortunately, um, he uh, did not manage to publish his work <laughs> right. uh, or made it known to the yeah. community before Hubble. And so then Hubble got uh, the name mm. uh, of the law and the discovery. But yes, that had been theoretically pointed out by Lemaitre as well. And Hub Hubble, by all accounts, was, had a better PR behind him as right. well. <laughs> he yeah. was better at, the, better at the press angle of, the, of these things. Um, so the, the static universe idea was that there were a bunch of galaxies that were just sitting there doing nothing, but it was quickly realised that if you do that, gravity will just cause them all to collapse, crush, yeah. collapse together. Yeah. Um, and and so to not be doing that, they've either they're all collapsing together, and we've only got a limited time here left until they all collide, or they're all flying away. Right. And it's that rate of them appearing to fly away from each other due to the expansion of the universe that became this this law, and the 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 rate of expansion was parameterized like the number given to it was this hubble constant which is now right famous in in astronomy so a constant everyone um everyone mentions and so the the race was then on from the 1920s 30s and so on to figure out exactly what that rate of expansion was uh, so how 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 does that work? how do you go and figure out what that rate of expansion is right so there are different ways we know now that there are different ways of doing it uh the uh, initial method that we used by hubble for example was to um so okay so the the key element here is that we need to reach far out in space uh, because if we look locally, uh, most of things will move subject to the gravity or interaction with other things nearby. So, for example, right. we have little galaxies orbiting us. We have Andromeda galaxies actually moving right. towards, towards us. us. So we are all coupled and we mm. all move together. So we need to go uh, further away and look at things that are disjoint. And so they're really subject mostly to the expansion of the universe mm. and not to their nearby object. Right. So the idea is to go as far as possible in distance and and try uh, to then look out there uh, how quickly things are moving. Um, so 
Hubble started by looking at um, some peculiar stars, which are called the Cephades variables. Uh, these stars expand and compress mm. with a relationship which is very well known between the period of these um, uh, radial compression and mm. their luminosities. Uh, so from uh, looking at these stars, it could uh, figure out the distance of these stars because the, the, the luminosity that we observe will be linked to how far uh, they are from us. And that, that's something called the, well, essentially the, what's sometimes called the inverse square law. So if something's twice as far away, right. it appears four times fainter. So if you know how bright it is intrinsically... intrinsically. Um, so if you know you've got a 100-watt light bulb and you know how bright it appears to your eye or to your camera, you can figure out how far away it is. For example. It's that principle. It's yes. a fairly basic principle. Yes. Right? So the, the upper law is linking basically velocity and distances, mm. uh, but none of those can be directly measured in cosmology. Right. So you need to find an object with some peculiar physical quantity that you know to start with and then infer the distance from there. So mm. in this case... Uh, you know their true luminosity through this uh, luminosity period relation mm -hmm. that links uh, uh, how bright they are to how uh, quickly they uh, pulsate, basically. Uh, and from that, you infer the distance mm -hmm. of these objects. And then on the other side, you need to find out this velo uh, velocity, which you can get by, uh, for example, looking at uh, a specific uh, emission uh, within one of these stars or galaxies uh, and compare it to a reference emission that you know, for example, in lab. So um, when we say emission, we mean a, a very particular wavelength, a very particular colour of light that's emitted by a particular element or molecule or atom. Or, or exactly. Something. So we can measure that in our lab for a known transition mm. and then we can look uh, at that same transition in, a in an object far away. And by putting those two uh, together, we can infer uh, if uh, the object has a, a velocity. Uh, because basically the, the difference in wavelength will relate to a velocity, uh, to the velocity of an object. And this is, this is the Doppler shift. Exactly. So people might have heard that with things like the classic examples of police cars or ambulances coming towards you, whether or a train whistle or something. It appears high pitched when it's coming towards you, and then it, as it passes, it goes low pitched. Again, it's that. It's just that effect. Again, it's, a fairly basic principle, right? But just translated to cosmology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The <laughs> but, bigger, but yeah, not ambulances here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's a. Um, longer distances yeah. and different velocities, but it's basically the same concept. Yeah. And this is usually uh, called redshift mm -hmm. uh, because these things are receding and so the, the, the shift in wavelengths moves towards uh, yeah. the red. Um, okay, so, so Abel was uh, looking at the luminosities and so the distances of these Cephades variables mm -hmm. and then uh, other people had measured the redshift uh, so the, uh, the velocity of these galaxies. And so by putting them together, uh, he measured uh, um, a relation between velocity and redshift and the constant of uh, proportionality between the two was uh, the Hubble constant. Mm -hmm. Now, we can uh, measure accurately uh, the distance of Cephades locally mm -hmm. in our own galaxies. But then we need to move out. As I said before, we need to reach far uh, in deep space uh, to really have uh, the measurement of uh, the expansion of the universe. So what we can do is then look for Cephades into other galaxies and calibrate them mm. to our own local Cephades. So it's kind of doing a match of physical properties, like, for example, the true luminosity, yeah. Uh, if these stars are the same in other galaxies, then the same kind of relationship that we have measured in our local galaxy will hold also in other galaxies. Mm -hmm. So you try to create a connection uh, between the two points. But when we look at other galaxies, the Cephades uh, might be not bright enough. Uh, and so we might not uh, see many of them and we might not have uh, enough uh, uh, stars to be able to work out uh, uh, what we want to measure. So what we uh, tend to do is to look also for supernovae, which are uh, other uh, standard candles in cosmology. And here by standard candle, I mean 
uh, an object that has uh, some um, very well-known uh, intrinsic property. Again, in this case, would be the luminosity, mm-hmm. um, and and anchor it and use that to, to anchor the distance of these objects. And the, the supernovae are exploding stars, which have this this um, very well predict or particular types of exploding stars, which have this very uh, well predicted brightness or right. luminosity that we can measure. Exactly. Uh, and 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 supernovae are much brighter than cepheids, mm. so we can find them even uh, further out. And so then we do the same again. We extend the ladder again, and we move into further away supernovae. And with that, we reach the region where nearby objects are not affecting us anymore. And so we are really measuring only the expansion rate uh, of the universe. So it's it's a uh, a three-step process which involves a lot of astrophysics of stars Mm. and our understanding of uh, how stars uh, live and die and evolve to be able to to get out there. So a bunch of assumptions, but assumptions that we think we understand fairly well locally, at least within our galaxy. Exactly. Um, Yes, that's right. And so in in the middle of the 20th century... This was being done. Um, there were Seaford variables being measured. There were supernovae stars to be measured towards the end of the, the 20th century. And they were coming up with measures of this um, this Hubble parameter, this Hubble constant. Now, the, the units are a bit funny, so we don't necessarily need to worry about the, uh, about the units. If anyone cares, it's kilometres per second per megaparsec. But there we go. That doesn't really matter. But they were coming out with a number for, right. for that. Um, and... Uh, the number somewhere, well, the number in the mid-20th century, in the second half of the 20th century, varied hugely depending on what people were measuring. So it, it was a, a big bone of contention between cosmologists at the time. Yeah, so to start with, Hubble measured a number which was in the range of 500 right. uh, for this constant. Uh, and even with refined measurement, it was always uh, bigger than 300 or something like that. Uh, and we know today that that's too big. And the main reason why we know it's too big is that if you try uh, to use that number to compute the age of the universe, it will appear that the universe is younger than Earth. Uh, so there is, it's not possible. There is something wrong there. And you can do that because if you know how, if, if you use this constant to figure out how fast the universe is expanding, you can turn that round and say, right, how long has it been expanding since it was all in one place? Exactly. Uh, started and that's it, so it? you can convert that number into an age yeah. of the universe. Uh, and at the same time, if we want to measure the age of Earth, we can look at um, radioactive processes mm. in, in rocks and decaying processes in rocks. Mm. Uh, and so we knew at already uh, in the 50s, 1950s, that that was not possible, that there was something wrong there. Um, so the, the reason uh, for why this number was coming uh, this high is that um, Hubble and other people at the time were confusing two different population of Cephate variables. So there were, there were two kinds of cephates uh, that they were using, and they don't have the same properties. Right. And so by m- mixing these different populations, we were coming up with the wrong answer. So that statement I made earlier about these are all things we think we understand fairly well, it turns out we didn't understand yeah. them as well as we thought. Yeah. <laughs> well, we discovered, yeah. for example, there were two populations yeah. of, of them. Yeah. Um, right, so this, this was uh, uh, the, the first initial uh, problem. And then we moved in the mid-50s, and at that point, uh, there were mostly two uh, groups who were getting um, two different answers. Uh, there was a group led by Sandage who was getting something of the order of 50, and a group uh, led by De Vaucouleur who was getting something of the order of 100. And, and apparently it was a pretty bitter controversy <laughs> going on at the time about these two numbers. Uh, and um, and this went on for a fair amount of time uh, without uh, being able to settle on middle grounds um, until uh, we then discovered that um, 
we were not taking into consideration all the ingredients uh, of the universe into these calculations. So the, the main reason why uh, Sandage was pushing to have something of the order of 50 is because he had to uh, assume at the time that the universe was filled with only matter. Right. And so if you fill it only with matter, that was the only number you could get to have the universe older than the stars that which we have. Is, which on is Earth, not which an is unreasonable sensible, assumption. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it was yeah. trying to make things work. Yeah. Um, but then the big discovery came along that we don't only have matter in, in our universe. We had other stuff. We have, in particular, this unknown uh, form of dark energy uh, that is dominating actually most of the universe budget. And now if you take that into consideration, uh, you want something more of the order of 70 and not 50. And, and the dark energy is something that is, um, it's almost like this anti-gravity force, which is pushing everything apart faster and faster. That's not a very good physical description of it, but that's the effect that it has. It seems to cause that expansion, which was slowing down as gravity slowed down, that, that pulled everything back, tried to pull everything back in. And then dark energy has been pushing it apart faster. So that changes that expansion rate. Right. Yeah. And although it's not uh, a very detailed description, probably that's as much as we all know about it at yeah. the moment. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's a very mysterious component and, and, and we don't know more than that at this mm. stage. Okay. So the number got settled in the late 20th century onto somewhere, this number being somewhere about 70. Right. Uh -huh. And at, at also at that time, in the, in the very late 20th century, the late 1990s, there was another way of measuring this, which instead of looking at local things, um, went much, much further afield and came, came at it from the other direction, as it were. So that, this was looking at the early universe. So how do we use the early universe, or our measurements of the early universe, to establish what this rate of expansion is? So the kind of a, the idea is kind of the same. You need to have uh, you need to be able to measure distances, and you need to be ha uh, to be able to have a physical property that you know is going to be fixed and you can rely on. So in the early universe, there was a time when uh, photons and baryons were tightly coupled together, and in fact they were oscillating. So it was like uh, a single fluid that was compressing and expanding and, and having some uh, uh, oscillations that uh, are called acoustic oscillations. So it was like a seething ball of, well, ball is probably the wrong word, but a seething collection of a of, of very, very, very hot gas called a plasma. Right. And it was that balance between all the particles and all the radiation, the photons, the light pushing it apart. And that, that competing, those competing forces, if you like, caused it to, resonate to, well not to resonate cause it to oscillate um like a, like a, a sound it was a sound wave right it was it, a sound wave yeah, yeah. yeah and it was perfect balance between gravity and pressure that was uh, holding everything together then at some point uh as the universe was expanding uh photons decided that they could start travel freely uh and this this moment is called the recombination um, and and what happens there is that uh, the ionized particles start recombining combining together, uh, and and so the, the photons are not trapped to to these ions anymore uh, because uh, there are less free things moving mm -hmm. around, and so, so now you got... don't scatter on them anymore, right? Yeah, and now we've got neutral gas. We've got neutral hydrogen and exactly. helium in the universe. So you right. start forming some neutral atoms, and so the photons start to to see their way out of this mm -hmm. plasma, and they start to propagate out of this plasma. So there is a clear decoupling from uh, atoms and baryonic mm -hmm. matter uh, and photons. And, and this decoupling happens at a moment that we uh, uh, used to that we used to set what is called the sound horizon. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the moment uh, when uh, the acoustic waves have been traveling from Big Bang to the to the coupling that mm -hmm. that is setting the sound horizon. So we get this kind of if we study those photons, that light coming from that early point in the universe. Because there was a, a particular point, a fairly brief point, where that, that combination happened and the, the, the neutral hydrogen formed. If we look at that light from that time, we get this snapshot right. of 
the universe. Right. Um, so we, we get basically a picture mm. of the universe at that moment. And these photons will carry with them information about that phase of uh, oscillations together with the variance. Uh, so if we look at the properties of these uh, photons that they reach us today, so we measure them today, uh, if we look at the properties of these, these photons, they will have some intrinsic uh, scale and um, pattern that is directly linked to those acoustic oscillations in the early universe. Um, and And... We know when the decoupling happened, so we know the moment when it happened, and we measure the distance to that moment mm -hmm. uh, today by looking at the pattern of these um, uh, of the properties of these photons. And that's because we know we are, the physics of the early universe. Although it sounds like hard hard to conceive, uh, hard, hard to sort of get in your head, the, the physics of the early universe, because it was just ionized gas, is relatively simple. simple. Yeah. So we know how big those patterns on the sky should be. In, in you know light years if you know we have a distance of how big they will be and that's that's our constant that's that you mentioned having to have something that was a fixed physical property that's the yep. fixed physical property right yeah and we can predict it really well yeah. right it's uh uh as you say it's it's simple to work out uh yeah. how it should look like uh, and and the data at the same time have reached an incredible accuracy. So we have a really incredible match between observations and theoretical predictions. So we can measure really, really well today um, the scale uh, that we are looking for at this point. Uh, now, this scale is... Uh, a function of the Hubble constant, mm -hmm. but it's also a function of other cosmological parameters, like how much stuff and what kind of stuff is present in the universe mm -hmm. uh, and, and other properties of, um, in particular, of the very early universe. So when we measure the Hubble constant uh, by looking at this scale, we end up having a measurement of the Hubble constant together with a lot uh, of other parameters. So it's part of a larger model of right. our understanding of the universe. So, yeah, it's, it's more an um, overall description of the universe and the Hubble constant is one of those parameters that fall into mm. this modelling. Uh, but but we get a very accurate measurement of of, uh, of this parameter, and the number has now been consolidated by many experiments that have tried to do this, uh, including uh, NASA and ESA satellites, and now ground-based experiments. Uh, and 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 the number is again in the range of uh, seventy, as uh, as we have seen happening for. Uh, the the other method, and everything was fine. Yeah, Everything, both methods were getting a Hubble constant of seventy kilometers per second per megaparsec, uh, and and the all was right with the world, all was right with the universe. And now we're in the region on the in the the age of precision cosmology, which is where we can start to measure these things with more advanced instrumentation, and we can measure galaxies further out. We can measure this early universe much 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 more precisely, and. When we say about 70, you start to narrow down. You don't say it's about 70, you say, oh, it's about 72, or it's about 67, or whatever. It's more than that. It's 73.4, right. or okay. 68.2. So it's it's yeah. getting to the decimal now yeah. of the measurement. And that's where the problem has now arisen, because it's those decimal points that are giving us the problem. So w what kind of discrepancy are we getting Um these days from the latest measurements that we've got. Right, so uh, we tend to compare numbers based on the error on the measurement, right? right? And and what we want to have uh, two measurements that are consistent with each other is to have op overlapping errors. And that's because no measurement is, you know, pre absolutely precise. There's always some uncertainty based on uh, your, your measurement has always got some range it could be within because no, no measurement is perfect. And so as you say, it will say it's 67.2 plus or minus 0.3 or something. There'll something be some, like, yeah, yeah. Something like that, exactly. Uh, and so if you want two numbers to uh, be consistent with each other, you want that those errors to overlap at mm. some level. Mm. Uh, 
uh, and, 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 you know, like if we take the example you made, you say uh, plus or minus 0.3, you don't really want overlap within that 0.3 because mm -hmm. that would be too perfect. You mm -hmm. want overlap usually uh, within roughly three times that number. Okay. That's what we kind of call uh, consistency. We, we use these three times the error as mm -hmm. um, an estimate of 99% uh, confidence that those those two numbers were measuring the same thing. Now, if you uh, talk to particle physicists, uh, they prefer to have five times that error. Yeah, right. <laughs> to, 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 to they're be just more, less uncertain. They're more, fine, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. more conservative from this point of view. Right. So uh, ideally, uh, to, to be able to tell that everything is fine, you want the two numbers within three times the, the largest error, let's say, because maybe the two measurements have different uh, accuracy and so you'll have different errors. And now we are in a situation where these two numbers, the one coming from the early universe and the one coming from measuring Cephas in the local universe, is uh, discrepant uh, at the level of a bit more than four times the errors. So they're they're a bit beyond. So it looks like there's a a, a, a less than one percent chance that these are agreeing. Let's say yeah, or less than one percent chance that these are measuring the same thing. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so now we have a problem because you said that the the debate in the mid to late 20th century was very bitter with people talking about which value of the Hubble constant was. You've now got two teams doing different, or two groups of teams, lots and lots of different teams, two different measurements different teams are making using different methods, in theory coming out with the same number, but actually getting a slightly different answer. Um, and uh, both teams are convinced that their method is right, I imagine. Yeah. Um, but... Unless we misunderstand something out of the universe, one of them or possibly both of them are slightly wrong. I mean, we're talking about slight differences here, right? This is not saying your measurement is way out. This is saying there's maybe something you're not taking into account. So are there thoughts as to how these might, why these might be disagreeing? Um, so there are two, two ways of proceeding here. Uh, there is one exciting way and mm. one less exciting, more conservative way. So the exciting way is that uh, we are discovering something new that we have not thought of before. So like in the uh, 50s, uh, they they were getting the wrong answer because they didn't include dark energy. Yeah. And so probably we are seeing the same thing. Or, Our... or the example of two different types of seafood variables. Exactly. If there's, if there's something we don't understand about supernovae there's two different types of supernovae this particular class of supernovae then then that would change the res right. result so this could be evidence for some new physics that we have not seen before and that is starting to show up now uh, and this new physics could lie into for example uh, some difference between the early universe and the late time universe mm. i mean after all 17 13.7 uh, giga years have mm. passed yeah. uh, and so something might be happening that uh, is not the same mm. uh, at the beginning and today right uh, so that's option number one and that's exciting because if that is true then we're learning something new that we didn't mm. know before and this could be a big paradigm uh, mm. shift the other less exciting option is that um, there is uh, still something that needs to be fine-tuned in the measurements and in the analysis uh, of one or both methods. So I think the methods are right, but probably the way we apply them mm. might not be uh, fully right yet. And so the assumptions so, that go in... Exactly. The, you know. They could be uh, different. Uh, they could be uh, slightly incorrect or they need mm. to be uh, made, uh, uh, I don't know, more conservative mm. or refined uh, mm. at some level. Um, so on the early universe uh, side, for example, um, the, the, the main... Um, thing to look at is the fact that, as I said before, when you measure this Hubble constant, you measure it together with a lot of other parameters. So there is some confusion in a way uh, mm. of what is what uh, sometimes. Uh, 
Uh, and so getting more accurate measurements uh, could help uh, reduce this confusion uh, and, and, you know, pin down uh, much more um, the, the contribution of a given parameter, mm. uh, for example. On the local universe front, uh, there are uh, some astrophysical uh, uncertainties that impact the application of this method. Uh, so, for example, uh, we tend to measure cephades uh, in a, a nearby galaxy, the Large Magellanic Cloud. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we know that this galaxy is very different from our own galaxy. And so mm. then what we do is matching its cephates to our cephates. And right. what if they are not exactly the same population of stars? So that because they're made of slightly different, there's slightly different amounts of different chemical elements exactly in that large magnetic cloud. Exactly, in that galaxy. Yeah. So what if those stars have different properties compared to the one mm. that we see locally? Uh, and and then there are some other environmental effects that impact how bright a star mm. is and things like that. Uh, for example, cephades like to live in very dusty regions, and so that dust might also be absorbing some of the light that mm. comes from those cephades. So we are measuring something that is not exactly what they are emitting. So. And this is only one example of how uh, astrophysics can impact what we actually uh, measure. Every one of those examples is an assumption you put into your measurement yeah. and your, your calculation. That, and if that assumption is wrong by some small amount, then the final result will be wrong by some small amount. Exactly. So, of course, all these, thi all these things have been tested when, when a new measurement comes out. Mm. Uh, there has been a checklist of things that you have looked uh, at. Uh, but, but that doesn't mean that we, we have all the data uh, and all uh, the measurements that we need to do it at uh, a you know, more refined uh, level mm -hmm. that will have less impact uh, on our results. Uh, so there is definitely more to do uh, mm -hmm. on that front. Um, the other thing which uh, I think is really important going forward is to... Uh, look at new data uh, and new avenues uh, for measuring this constant. So this is, if, if there are two methods that are disagreeing, let's find a third method and do a best for of three. For example, right? <laughs> and see where it sits. Uh, and this is something that we have started seeing, uh, for example, by uh, getting the first measurements of the Hubble constant with gravitational waves. Uh, so, again, the key ingredient is getting to distance to a peculiar system that we can characterize well, and this has been done for uh, binary neutron stars uh, emitting gravitational waves. Just one measurement so one far, measurement so early days. Yeah. For now, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's, it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's the first time that we see mm. it and we show that it is possible and, and it will happen uh, in the mm. future. Uh, there have been other methods using strong lensing, for example, mm -hmm. so by looking at how gravity bends light mm -hmm. uh, and and if you get uh, a strong, let's say, bending, the distance that one uh, photon uh, mm -hmm. travels um, is different from the distance that another photon travels, so you can have some time delay in between mm -hmm. the two signals and you can use that. Uh, to measure the Hubble constant, and that has also been uh, done and uh, proved. Um, there are some other methods uh, to look at the local universe, for example, not using cephates, mm -hmm. but using some other uh, stars or objects. And, and these are all uh, coming online and they should produce results in the next few years. Uh, and then, and then I believe there will be many more uh, measurements coming from the early universe. Even if mm. with the same method, it will come from different experiments and with more accuracy. So there will be uh, more uh, to come from that side mm. as well that can cross-check. And that's important actually, because the, the local universe measurements have been done by lots and lots and lots of different teams, taking lots and lots and lots of different 
groups of you know collections of data. The early universe is is maybe a handful of different experiments that have been able to do this well. So you mentioned things like WMAP, a NASA satellite. There's Planck, a European Space Agency satellite. And there's, I know you work on Simon's Observatory, which is coming online as a ground-based experiment, and there are other ground-based experiments that have done it. But, you know, it's only a handful of experiments that have done this. And if, if they've all done something wrong in the same kind of way, there's been some assumption that's slightly wrong, then maybe a new experiment won't right. do that. But there is, there is a, a subtlety here, uh, which is if you, if you take the measurement from the early universe... And with that, you try to predict what supernovae in the local universe should mm. do. It matches perfectly at the moment with data from uh, Planck, for example. Right. So, okay. so supernovae are used in local measurements, right, yeah. to estimate H0. Uh, so if there is some disagreement between early time and late time universe, then you should be able to see that same disagreement already at the supernovae level mm. before you get to, you know, the ladder down and go to Cephades and H0. Right, okay. And you don't yeah. see that. Um, so it's starting to show up as if it's probably it's not the early universe estimate versus the local estimate, but there yeah. might be some more complicated step in between. Right. Um, Which hints at some new at least if not new model sorry if not new physics some new cosmology some new a slight modification to our understanding of the the universe maybe we mentioned dark energy briefly but maybe dark energy this, this gives us a handle on what dark energy is or what it might be or how it's behaving more than just an anti-gravity force type yeah, thing absolutely um, yeah exciting times yeah, yeah. and so in, in the coming years and decades we'll get more measurements of this there are there are Every it's every few months now. There's a new paper coming out saying that they've refined some measurement and so on. Some new some new experiment has done taken some more data and 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 it was seen a few years ago that maybe these two measurements have sort of moved together and it would be some experimental change. Well, we've reanalyzed our data and we've decided that it's different and that these two would merge somewhere in the middle or one would move towards the other. And and they are steadfast in their yeah. discrepancy. So so something something's got to give at some point either those experiments or our understanding of, of physics and the universe. And as, as you said, that's the exciting one for a lot of cosmologists and, and astronomers. I mean, I for think. people who work on data, I think finding, a, finding out what is the wrong assumption that is causing it is also exciting, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. It could be equally exciting to just find out what is doing it, even if it's yeah. just like a wrong assumption or a slightly wrong assumption in the analysis. And with all the new methods coming on from, from gravitational lensing, from gravitational waves and, and merging neutron stars and so on, then maybe we'll get a better handle uh, in, uh, in years to come. Uh, certainly uh, and the, the era of precision cosmology, where, where it seems to be getting boring as everyone's getting the same answers, has taken an interesting turn. Uh, so uh, exciting time in, uh, in the coming, coming years. Uh, Dr. Amini Calabresi, thanks very much. Thank you. Don't forget you can find past episodes of this podcast at pythagastro.uk, where you can also subscribe to the podcast. My thanks to Edward and Amenia. That's it for this month. Until next month, goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.